This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn. First off, welcome to Phoenix Comic Con, everyone. Been packed this weekend, has it not? With us today is uh, he's been called by the Ottawa Citizen the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction, and is one of only eight writers in history and the only Canadian to win all three of the science fiction field's top honors for best novel of the year, including the World Science Fiction Society's Hugo Award for the novel Hominids in 2003, the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America Nebula Award in 1996 for The Terminal Experiment, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, which you, which you won in 2006, right, for the novel Mindscan. And also the television series Flash Forward is based on your novel of the same name. Ladies and gentlemen, may I please present Robert J. Sawyer. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Certainly. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming out. I know there are all kinds of other things to choose from, so I'm grateful to those of you who have chosen this. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do for the hour, because it depends in part on what your interests are, but I imagine most of you saw the TV series Flash Forward. No? Well, good, because now you can go out and buy the DVDs. Well, I'll say a little bit about Flash Forward anyways as a way of starting, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Um, Flash Forward was a fabulous experience for me. I know what authors are supposed to do is stand up and say Hollywood raped them, Hollywood treated them like crap, Hollywood ruined their vision, Hollywood ripped them off. None of those things were true. I had an absolutely wonderful experience with Flash Forward. My only real regret is that it only lasted a single season of 22 episodes. That said, to my astonishment and delight, it is the longest-running science fiction television series ever based on a novel by a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. So even though we only lasted one year, we still set a record. Uh, the previous record holder, had, we had 22 episodes, previous record holder had only 17. It was way back in 1970 on the same television network, a long-forgotten TV series called The Immortal, based on a novel by James Gunn called The Immortals, um, and starring Christopher George. Uh, Sherry Jackson, who has a table in the dealer's room, some of you will remember her as the gorgeous 
android Andrea from the Star Trek original series episode, uh, What Are Little Girls Made Of, uh, was also guest starred on The Immortal. Uh, and one of the things she's selling is a DVD that my friend David bought that has uh, clips of all the shows that she did over the years she was in that. Years from now, I'm sure Peyton Lists will be going around hoping that people remember that she was once on Flash Forward. She played Nicole, a wonderful, wonderful actress, great, great lady. Um, I had just had a blast doing it. And I guess I want to outline why it was such a positive experience. It was a liberal adaptation of my novel. I was prepared for liberal adaptations because I was a longtime science fiction fan. One of my favorite TV shows, uh, sorry, one of my favorite movies of all time is Planet of the Apes. And wonderful, right? Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Hey, pardon? Do you need to even ask? <laughs> the original, he asked. Yes, the original, the Franklin J. Schaffner production from 1968 with Arthur P. Jacobs as the producer and starring Charlton Heston, Kim Hunter, Roddy McDowell, and Morris Evans. Uh, wonderful, wonderful film but a very liberal adaptation of the novel by Pierre Boulel, the French writer, uh, who was best known actually not for creating Planet of the Apes, but for writing the novel The Bridge on the River Kwai, which the movie was made from. Um, that's a very liberal adaptation. That was fine with me that it was a liberal adaptation because the media are different, books, television, books, films. So I was prepared when David Goyer and Brandon Braga said they wanted to have a meeting with me uh, that they were going to tell me what they, you know, what their plans were. But I have to say, that isn't the norm. The normal thing is for a producer in Hollywood to option your work or purchase your work, um, and then you never hear from them again, and then they start changing things. David and Brandon both have reputations that are built principally on adapting other people's work. Brandon, of course, came involved with Star Trek after the original series and worked very closely to continue Gene Roddenberry's legacy for many, many years. And I know that, and I mentioned this in another panel, I know Brandon's contributions are sometimes considered controversial because people remember how Enterprise ended and even Brandon will say, yeah, that was a mistake. Uh, but we have to also remember that he won a Hugo Award. He won a Hugo Award for writing All Good Things, the series finale of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was a spectacular piece of work. He also was scriptwriter on First Contact, which was the best of the Next Generation films, I think, without question. He's a very talented man. But his reputation was built on adaptation. David Goyer's reputation was built on coming in with Blade Three, the third book in the the third movie in the Blade uh, trilogy, uh, and of course Batman Begins, taking Bob Kane's creation and remaking it for another generation. So I understood that these guys were respectful guys. These were guys who who honored the source material and yet were super bright, super creative guys, and would have their own take. So they, as gentlemen, invited me to lunch at Shadow Montmartre, a famous. Uh, Hollywood haunt, old world, old school Hollywood haunt. Um, you knew it was a major Hollywood place because having lunch at the next table when we sat down to have lunch was Keanu Reeves. And they said, here, we'd like to adapt your book, but here's what we feel we have to change. And that was remarkable because they could have just said, here, we'd like to acquire rights to your book and never discuss it with me. They said, but, you know, if you're not comfortable with this, then we're not comfortable with it. So let's go through what the changes are. There are three. First change was that my book was mostly set in and around Geneva, Switzerland, specifically at CERN, the European Center for Particle Physics. And they said, no Americans will watch a show set outside the United States. 
So we have to move it to the United States, but not anywhere in the United States. There, in fact, are only a handful of cities that Americans will watch shows about. Los Angeles, New York, Boston, and Chicago. And if you think about that, that's almost every TV show that's ever had a long run are those four cities. So, okay, there are obviously exceptions, but those are the most popular ones. So we're going to opt for Los Angeles. Why? Well, because... Disney Studios are in Los Angeles, and it's easier to film L.A. as L.A. than to try and make it masquerade as New York. Cool. Number two, they said, in your novel, the flashes are 21 years into the future instead of, they suggested, a year into the future. They said, we can't do that. And I said, why not? They said, well, because it'll look like science fiction. You will have scenes that are set in the future, and you'll have to have robots or flying cars or fancy computers or... uh, you know, off-the-wall, weird, futuristic fashions. And what that will do is when Middle America is flipping channels, they'll see that it's a science fiction show, and they'll want to flip even faster to get past it. They won't, that's not what slows them down, that's what speeds them up. So yes, we all know it's a science fiction property, but it can't look like science fiction. That was reason number one. Reason number two was television is all about beautiful people. And if you saw our TV show, you know we had... Peyton List as one of our stars, and Sonia Walger as one of our stars, and Jack Davenport as one of our stars, and John Cho as one of our stars, and Joseph Fiennes as one of our stars, and Gabriel Union as one of our stars, and Courtney B. Vance, Zachary Knighton, um, Christine Woods. They were all gorgeous. Everyone in our cast was gorgeous. And that's what television's all about, gorgeous people. Well, you don't hire gorgeous people and then make them look old and haggard for half the time they're on the air. That's a non-starter for television. They've got to look gorgeous all the time. So 20 years in the future, can't do that. Can't do that. We're going to do a year. At which point I said, you guys have lived in Southern California way too long. Because in the rest of the world, we have these things we call seasons. And if you actually make it six months instead of a year then you'll be able to visually distinguish the present timeline and the future timeline in places that aren't Los Angeles, and the show is global and the things that are happening, by whether you, know, you can have snow and summer or you can have daffodils coming up and you can have the trees changing color. And David and Brandon looked at each other and said, ooh, that's cool. And out of that moment, what was our single greatest shtick for the series was born out of that discussion. And that was, well, you know, we're going to do 22 episodes, we hope, a full season for network television 22. If we do six months, well, how many weeks are there in six months? Well, there, in fact, are 26 weeks in in six months. And then we're all thinking, oh, wait a minute. What about that TV series 24, which had this odd conceit that it would do 24 episodes, and each one would represent one hour out of a single day? It starts at midnight and goes to 11.59.59 p.m., right, the next day. It goes one 24-hour thing, 24 episodes, one hour. We could do something that would be as cool as that. We would have our show unfold in real time. We would do those six months, we would try just five and a half, so it'd be 22 weeks into the future so that our first episode is where they see the future and the last episode in real time with the dates matching on your calendar at home with what was happening in television, we would catch up with the future. And that would be, nobody had ever done that before and it would be such a cool thing to structure a show around. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, we're all on board about that. Uh, The third thing they said was, well now, you know, the main characters in your novel are physicists and an engineer. And Americans will not watch TV shows about physicists and an engineer. One of my proudest moments when I was working on Flash Forward was at the end of one day in the writer's room, going like this and saying, okay, guys, I'm done for the day. I'm going off to watch a taping of that show 
about physicists and an engineer that kicks our butt every week in the ratings. And that was, of course, Big Bang Theory. Uh, in fairness, when that edict came down, Big Bang was on the air, but it hadn't had its breakout year. Its first year, it was just kind of a sleeper. And then it got word of mouth, and it got bigger and bigger. And it's bigger now than it has ever been before. In fact, in Canada, where I live, it is the number one top-rated television program in Canada's Big Bang Theory. That's geek heaven up north, guys. Come on up. Um, <laughs> And it is uh, here, for some reason, Charlie Sheen's ridiculous sitcom was number one. Um, and they're produced by the same people, uh, Chuck Lorre and um, Bill uh, Padre, is that the same? Anyways, hey, an alpha smart Neo? Rock on, dude. All right. Um, excellent machine, excellent machine. Uh, so they said, we can't do that. They can't be the main characters. So we're going to have the characters. The main characters in your novel are Lloyd Simcoe and Theo Prokopides, uh, slightly older and slightly younger. Theoretical physicists Lloyd and Theo are going to be the main scientist characters, but they're going to be in the background. In fact, in the first episode, you're not even going to see one of them, and the other one, you're not going to know what he does for a living. And I said, okay, that's cool. What are you going to do? Well, there only are three professions that Americans will watch TV about, and they are doctors, doctors lawyers, lawyers Cops, doctors, lawyers, and cops. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the main character will be a cop. Well, he'll be an FBI agent. And he'll be married to a doctor. And his partner, of course, will be another cop. And he'll be engaged to a lawyer. And we'll get everybody. And we'll <laughs> background the physicists and the engineers. And I thought, oh, okay, all right. That's what you think has to be done. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the only thing that will work on American television. So we set out and reimagined the series. And it did work within my premise. I said to them, I don't care about any of those things. They don't matter to me. What mattered to me is you being true philosophically to what Flash Forward was about. And philosophically, Flash Forward was about fate versus free will, an exploration of if you knew your future, even with knowing your future, could you avoid your fate? Interesting philosophical question. As long as that's what we're going to be about, I'm cool, let's make these changes, let's do the deal. We did it that day. And then they went off, wrote the pilot script, pilot script was picked up actually by HBO, not by ABC. Uh, then they costed out how much the pilot script would be to make, and HBO said, we need a bigger partner for this. This is a hugely expensive production. Um, let's farm it out to the big four and have a, see if anybody's interested. The big four are ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. And a bidding war immediately ensued between ABC and Fox for Flash Forward. And it kept escalating, which made all of us happy. We all own a piece of the action. We're all happy. It's escalating. ABC finally wins. Cool, ABC. Meant a lot to me for a couple of reasons. First, because not only did the previous longest-running science fiction show, based on remember the science fiction fantasy was America the Immortals, was on ABC, but also my favorite science fiction show, based on a novel, was on ABC as well. It was The Six Million Dollar Man, based on the novel Cyborg by Martin Caden. Right? Now, he wasn't a member of Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, but that he had uh, five seasons of Six Million Dollar Man and three of uh, Bionic Woman, based on his novel, Cyborg. Quite a good novel, actually. Well, all well and, and good. We're ending up with ABC. Cool. We're all set to go. Then ABC says, you know what? We actually have some paperwork here with Brandon Braga's name on it. It says he has an exclusive services contract with Fox. Uh, we won't let him work on Flash Forward. We've got a job for him. We want him to come over and work on 24 this season. Brandon went, contractual obligation. He left us. He was going to be what's called the showrunner, the head writer, executive producer slash head writer who 
crafts the whole series overall. Most famous showrunner of recent years in the context of a convention like this is Joss Whedon. He would have been the showrunner on Buffy. Head writer, keeper of the flame, keeper of the vision. And um, that was cool. Dave's principal interest, Dave Goyer, wants to direct. He directed our pilot fabulously, I must say. Uh, Brandon wants to work with the writer's room, the staff writers. Perfect. We had the great team, the, the yin and the yang. And then Brandon's out of the picture after our first episode, after our pilot, out of the picture. When the series is picked up, they say, no, go, you can't do it. We brought in another showrunner who had a different kind of vision for the show. And the show started to go off course for a couple of reasons, I think. First reason it went off course was that we got suddenly pressured to be the replacement for Lost. Nobody was saying that when they looked at our pilot script or even, well, when they started to say it when they got the pilot, wow, this is big and epic and got a big mythology behind it and, you know, Lost is going off the air and on ABC and ABC wants something to replace Lost. So we started getting pressured into Lost and the part, nobody understood Lost. Our writing room was in a cottage kind of thing, like a bungalow, let me say a bungalow, small bungalow, on the ABC studio lot, which is the Walt Disney lot in Los Angeles. Disney owns ABC. And the next bungalow over was the lost writing room. And we just put our fingers in our ears whenever they were screaming, just to kind of drown it out as they were trying to figure out what the hell was going to happen in that show and make it all make sense, right? Just so a very difficult thing. Uh, we had a different head writer come in, and a lot of our vision got lost. You remember the pilot, if those of you who have seen the pilot, everybody on Earth blacks out for two minutes and 17 seconds. Planes fall out of the sky. Millions of car crashes. People go tumbling down staircases. We have this beautiful scene, and I think it's in the second episode of a school bus where it just keeps on driving right into a lake, and everybody gets, almost everybody gets drowned and so forth. Um, huge, huge carnage. And the iconic image that was in our promotional posters for the show was Joe Fines, our star, playing Mark Benford, running up, jumping on the roof of a wrecked car, looking out, and the camera tips up and shows you Los Angeles and devastation, right? So we're a post-apocalyptic show, almost. Every, lots of people have survived, but the infrastructure of civilization has been horrifically damaged in the pilot. Starting with episode two, that was set by the wayside. You never saw any evidence of the destruction again. Now, new showrunner comes in, he's got a different vision. We don't want to concentrate on that. I didn't know what he wanted to concentrate on, and he was with us from episodes two through 13 and did everything as best as he thought he could by his lights, his vision. That's fine. The showrunner is the keeper of the flame. You do what he wants to do. But there was certainly a disagreement uh, on visions, and David Goyer came back in to do showrunning, which is not initially what he intended to do, to man the writer's room, starting with our 14th episode. But by that point, we had really, I think, in a lot of ways gone off track. Uh, and people didn't really know what the show was about anymore. There was a huge strategic mistake early in the show, uh, and that was in, I think it was our sixth episode, uh, one of the FBI agents, a recurring character, Agent Al Goff, G-O-U-G-H, Al Goff, decides that he wants to change his future because in his future, he's responsible, albeit accidentally, for the death of a young mother. And he decides, I'm going to change that future. I can't live with the future that I know of. And taking a page out of, out of my novel, where a similar circumstance occurs, he kills himself. He jumps off FBI headquarters and goes splat. And so obviously the future that he saw couldn't come true. Well, here's our question of our whole series, right? If you know your future, is it avoidable? And here in the sixth episode, we seem to answer it. Now, I had a contractual 
um, undertaking that I would write an episode of Flash Forward. It's part of my deal. You can make a novel out of my book, cool, I'm one of the writers, okay, deal. The showrunner who was responsible for the first several episodes kept pushing off my show. In fact, he kept pushing off a lot of people's ideas, uh, and I didn't get to write my show as the next one, the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th. We kept talking about it was going to be 8, it was going to be 9, 11, 13, 17, and it finally ended up being the 19th. That was a huge strategic error because the 19th episode is called Course Correction. It's currently nominated for a Constellation Award, which is a science fiction, fantasy, film, and television award for best single teleplay of the year, which is, I'm very flattered about. But it should have been the direct sequel to the sixth episode. You see in the sixth episode, it looks like you can escape fate. The next episode, Course Correction, should have showed, oh no, not so fast, bucko. The whole universe pushes back against this attempt, and everything looks like it's back to being uh, determinism, no free will fate instead. Instead, we went from 6 to 19 with people thinking, well, the central mystery is resolved. The future's not going to turn out the way people saw in their visions. You can change it. You can easily change it. This guy killed himself. Another guy just won't make a bad investment. A third person won't go run off with that man, whatever it is. That's fine. We resolved our issue. And because the episode that I had, which was a critical, pivotal episode, kept getting pushed off, we had people, we had huge audience dissipation. We lost about a quarter of a million viewers every week consistently for 22 weeks. That means after 22 weeks, you've lost five, six million viewers. And we started with 11 or 12 million, and we ended up with about five million at the end. Consistent straight line attrition into the toilet. Part of it was we started losing the one, oh, I thought it was going to be a cool post-apocalyptic show. Oh, it's not. Oh, I thought it was a show about fate versus free will. Oh, it's not. So on and so forth. And we kept losing people. The one thing that kept people going with us for an extended period of time, and I won't tell those who haven't seen it how it turned out, was a storyline that's one of the central storylines in my novel, which is the guy who has no vision of the future and gets a phone call telling him the reason you had no vision of the future is because I just read your obituary. You're dead. Not only are you dead, you were murdered. And I don't know who did it. I've just got this one little report in front of me, but I do know that. You're murdered in the future, so be on the alert. And that's the story, of course, that Dominic, uh, sorry, that John Cho's character plays out in Flash Forward. Well, it turned out that John Cho's character was way more popular with the audiences than our putative star, Joseph Fiennes. Joseph Fiennes' character of Mark Benford was not popular with the audiences. John Cho's character was enormously popular. I remember when we hired John, John had done Harold and Kumar movies, but he wasn't a breakout Hollywood star. He hadn't had a $100 million blockbuster yet. He did over the summer after we'd filmed our pilot and before we started our series. What film was that? Star Trek, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Suddenly he's a big hot property, he's got a big fandom of his own, and he is a spectacularly good dramatic actor, which nobody knew. They didn't know it from Harold and Kumar, and they didn't know it from Star Trek, where he's essentially comic relief. He's the guy who can't get the parking brake off the Enterprise when Captain Pike tells him to go, right, early in the film doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and he's got a couple of funny lines, but it doesn't test his mettle as an actor, being Hikaru Sulu in that film. Put him in flash forward, and people are riveted by him, and they love the storyline. Will, will he live or die by a certain date? The problem with that is we established in our first episode that his expiration date was not April 29th, 2010, which was the flash forward to date, but March 15th, the Ides of March, six weeks before the flash-forward date. That's the date that we established that he was supposedly killed. 
So we had a whole bunch of audience who was sticking with us to six weeks before the end of the series. That was the plot line they wanted to see resolved. And they didn't care if Joseph Fiennes ended up drinking or not. They didn't care if Olivia and Mark ended up together or not. They didn't care about whether Janice ended up having her baby or not. They didn't care about the conspiracy theory that had been swirling around everything. They cared about John's character. When his story was resolved, and I won't say how it was, when his story is resolved, they go, okay, that's what I wanted from this show. And we just continued that straight line thing down into the toilet. So we had a series of strategic mistakes with the show and a few contractual things like losing out on, John, uh, on uh, Brandon uh, early on. And for that matter, one of the reasons my episode, which was finally scheduled for 17, got bumped to 19 is it was crucial for the logic of what I wanted to portray that uh, the character of uh, Fiona Banks, who was the um, British intelligence agent who was in that episode, if you remember the episode where uh, Al Goff uh, kills himself, right? he kills himself because of his vision of the future that he has seen. The only person who was with Al Goff at the time that he uh, had his vision was Fiona Banks. In the first episode, Al Goff, who is this handsome African-American agent, is in the UK with this middle-aged, very attractive, uh, red-haired, British intelligence agent, they're together in a locked room. You remember a bird hits the window, they're together and they're alone. The only proof the, anybody in the universe had that he really had had the vision that he'd claimed that he had was the woman who was there with him at the time. So the pushback was to be this. In the next episode, she dies. There's no proof that any causality has been violated, any of what was set up had been violated by Al jumping off the FBI headquarters, and other things would happen too that showed that the universe, if anybody tries a deviation, the universe finds a way to deke around and there's a pressure being pushed to make sure that the future comes out the way it was envisioned. Very interesting, I thought very cool. Well, of course, the actress who played Fiona Banks, she's been on Doctor Who of late, I'm just having a brain fart here at this late date, can't remember her name, wonderful, wonderful actress not available. She's not under contract for the series. She's a guest star. We have to wait till she's available, which turned out to be our 19th episode when she was available. That said, everybody's second favorite character in the series was uh, Christine Wood's character of Janice Hawk, the lesbian FBI agent, right? Wonderful character, great actress, stunningly beautiful, brilliant, nicest, nicest lady too, just wonderful. And I gotta say, everybody was nice, the whole cast, wonderful people. She doesn't have a 22-episode contract. She's a supporting player. She has a 17-episode contract by that point in the series. She originally had like, you know, uh, five of the first nine, and then blah, 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 it grows, and you negotiate. She wasn't, we needed her for the series finale, which is 20 and 21, sorry, 21 and 22. There was another story that hinged on her for 20. I'm writing 19. She's only got three episodes left on her contract. She's out of my episode. Boom, she's gone, the second most popular character, and all the neat stuff that I'd written for her disappears from the show, simply because of contractual stuff. So very, very frustrating. But we had this uh, journey that could have gone better. There's no question about it. If I ever do write the book, The Making of Flash Forward, it'll be called It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. Because all of those decisions were made by well-intentioned people. Nobody at any point in the process said, let's make a TV show that's going to fail after one year. We had enormous support from ABC. They spent a fortune on the pilot. They spent $100 million making the series. Uh, they paid everybody involved well, including myself. They gave it 
a saturation level advertising campaign here in the United States, as I'm sure you saw, sides of buses and bus shelters and everything, amazing. So they, everybody wanted us to deliver. It is a good series. We're all proud of it. Everybody who worked on it is proud of it. We're all sad that it ended because as a team, as a group, we all got along, great fun, blast, everybody had a great time. But it did end. And uh, it ended not because anybody screwed up monumentally, but because in aggregate, a series of decisions and contractual realities led to us not being able to make it work. Lesson learned, we're all going on to work in other projects. I have other TV shows in development, Every one of our major cast members got a new show for the fall uh, or, or a movie. Uh, and everybody landed on their feet, which is terrific. But it is a, a sad thing that it is gone. So I've, I've tippered on here for half an hour about Flash Forward. Obviously, my oeuvre covers a lot more. Flash Forward is one of 20 novels uh, that I have out. All of them are in print. Most recently, my 18th, 19th, and 20th, Wake, Watch, and wonder about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness. Uh, Wake last year was a finalist for the Hugo Award um, for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year. Uh, and I am very pleased with how that trilogy worked out. A lot of my stuff flops over between science fiction and mystery. A lot of my stuff deals with the scientific nature of consciousness, awareness, and perception. And a lot of my stuff deals with um, uh, the conflict or perceived conflict between science and religion, and a lot of my stuff deals with paleo, uh, paleontological or paleoanthropological themes, both of which interest me a great deal. So that's kind of, just in a nutshell, what my other stuff is like. Uh, and I'd be happy to take any comments or questions or what have we here. Mr. Sunday, if that is your real name. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, You mentioned that nobody wanted to see science fiction. Right. On, on the big four networks, yeah. But, you know, I think as a country, it seems to me that we are turning away from science. I mean, I teach science. Yes. And so, in the fiction sense, it seems like fantasy is definitely dominating the field, and it's a hard time for science fiction right now. Do you see that changing in the no, it's really sad. Uh, my current publisher is Ace, and Ace used to be known as Ace Science Fiction. Well, it's not anymore, it's just Ace, because most of what they publish is fantasy. In fact, most of what they publish is um, paranormal novels these days. Um, Ace used to be a huge engine of science fiction book publishing, six different science fiction novels a month. They now do one science fiction novel a month and five fantasy novels a month. It's been, science fiction has been drying up like a puddle under a noonday sun for all the decades that I've been in it. 30 years as a science fiction short story writer, now 20 years as a science fiction novelist. It's gotten smaller every single year. It's sad for me to say this, but it may well turn out that science fiction was a 20th century literary form, just as the Victorian novel was, of course, a, uh, a 19th century literary form. It's something that's time may have come and passed. It has often been said by critics that it was the literary response to the Industrial Revolution. How is technology going to change us? Isaac Asimov said the, the definition of science fiction is responses of human beings to changes in science and technology. We've kind of moved past that where technology, we don't think of, you know, people who are anti-science will call you up on their iPhone to tell you that they're anti-science and not understand how ironic that is. Um, so it may indeed have have lost its way. Also, 50 years ago this week, John F. Kennedy spoke toward, uh, to your Congress saying, 
I believe this nation should commit itself to committing to the goal before this decade is out, right? putting a man on the moon, returning him safely to the earth. Right? <laughs> 50 years ago, thank you, not bad, not bad. 50 years ago, are we on the moon? We haven't been on the moon since 1972. No human being has gone more than 200 miles from Earth since 1972. The shuttle goes up about 105 miles like that. 1972, we haven't gone more than 200 miles. That is, two hours of driving straight up is as far as we've managed since Apollo uh, 17 left the moon. Taurus Littrow left and said goodbye. So that too, science fiction was writing the coattails of the great American dream that became a great international dream that made Mr. Spock and me brothers. No, but it was a great dream that spread uh, for a time that our future was going to be in, the spa in space and be based on great technological projects. That isn't the way it turned out to be. So I used to grouse to people, I really wish I had had my first novel out in 1980 because those guys who started in 1980 all went on to be 80 plus or minus, went on to be really rich. William Gibson, Gregory Benford, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, Greg Bear, uh, David Brin, uh, uh, Connie Willis, writers of, uh, of this nature. Now I just say, thank God I started in 1990 instead of 2000, because those poor saps who started in 2000 will never make a good living at it, science fiction, not fantasy. And those who are starting today in the decade later uh, are going to have an enjoyable hobby of writing science fiction. The audience with great regret, I say this, but it is a straight line trend, and everybody keeps saying, oh, it's a trend that will reverse. There's zero indication that it will reverse, nor any societal uh, impetus or impeller to make it want to reverse. Somebody else? Sure. Yes. I used to um, have no trouble uh, selling lots and lots of books in Japan, and Japan is dried up as a science fiction market, one of the most technophilic, technology-loving cultures on the planet. And it's a very, very small science fiction market these days. In fact, I was just guest of honor at a science fiction convention in Japan, um, and uh, this was their second year of doing it, and they gathered 100 fans, is what they managed to gather in Tokyo, uh, for actual books of science fiction. An anime convention in Japan, a uh, media convention, yes, those can still pull people in. But for the reading of science fiction books, it's shrunk there in lots and lots of markets. In the UK, it's in terrible shape, and the UK invented science fiction, Mary Shelley. H.G. Wells, uh, terrible shape over there. It is, it was definitely a Western phenomenon. It's never spread to uh, uh, the other parts of the world. There's a vanishingly small um, Islamic science fiction, for instance, vanishingly small um, science fiction uh, that is actual science fiction as opposed to magic realism from South America. Uh, it, 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 it was an industrial revolution genre out of England and the United States and really coming into its fluorescence as technology was seen as the great savior of the world, which, as you say, people are turning their backs on science here and elsewhere in the world, too. Yes, over here. Nah, bullshit. Read my stuff. I keep up with it just fine. Nothing personal. <laughs> but seriously, no, we're, uh, uh, we're ahead of the game all the time on that. We don't have any trouble keeping up with it at all. Um, I think that 
it's the most invigorating time to be a science fiction writer because there's so much more that you can plausibly do now. You had to invoke magic to do teleportation in the 1960s. Now you have good experimental solid work in quantum teleportation happening all over the world. Um, I, I, you know, uh, yes, it's hard work to keep up with science, but those of us who do it love doing it. And the stuff that's happening right now is so cool. It gives so many great ideas. Um, there was a TV series that only got shown once here in the United States. Excuse me if I felt my water. Called Charlie Jade. Did anybody see Charlie Jade? That's why it was only shown once here in the United States. It was shown on Sci-Fi, Canada, South Africa co-production. Um, nice series. I wrote the series Bible for it, which is the outline of what will happen in, in the episodes and the character sketches and so forth. Well compensated for it. And uh, it, it was done in 2000, so it's a decade old now or so. Um, and it was the first science fiction work, I think, of any type, and certainly the first science fiction television or film work to incorporate brain theory, B-R-A-N-E, which is a model of parallel universes or alternate universes, intrinsically into its plot. We're right on the cutting edge. I honestly, and I, I don't mean to be dismissive of your concern, but I, I do think that you talk to me or uh, the other guys who are doing hard SF. You look over at ACE, where we still have a half dozen of us who are kind of bearing the standard. Me, Charlie Strauss, uh, Jack McDevitt, uh, Joe Haldeman, um, Alan Steele. We each, each of us does a book a year for ACE. And um, you'll find that, that we're, we're right up to it. We're going to the scientific conferences on a routine basis. We're being asked to speak at scientific conferences. Uh, no, I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is it may be that the public has been left so far behind in their ability that when you do a story that hinges on quantum entanglement and they're still, all they remember is a little bit of classical Newtonian physics from you know grade eight, or I guess you say eighth grade down here, um, that uh, they're lost. And it becomes two ways to write the story. One is the way I do it, which is I find a way to elegantly educate you while you read the story if you don't know it, while hopefully not boring you if you already do. It's one approach. Charles Strauss's approach is to say, screw you. If you don't understand it, go read somebody else's book. And it makes for a very, very hard, hard science fiction that is incomprehensible to huge parts of the reading audience. But for those who like that, they like it a lot, right? So there are different strategies for this. I like having readers who, uh, let, me, let me see if I can describe this here properly. My greatest happiness was not flash forward or anything like that. One of my greatest happinesses was my novel, Calculating God, um, came out in 2000. And uh, I had sold, although it never ended up being serialized for scheduling reasons, I'd sold the serialization rights to analog, science fiction in fact, the bastion of hard science fiction in print publication. You can only do that if you're real, honest to God, hard science fiction. The book also was my first mainstream bestseller, which means you have all kinds of people reading it who aren't science fiction readers. And to be able to appeal to the hardcore SF readership and also to people who, for whom all these concepts were brand new is a huge juggling act. And that I was able to pull it off, that's the hallmark of my career. That's what I do. Charlie takes a different, different track and it works very, very well for Charlie. Very well paid, very successful science fiction writer. But it means that there's most of middle America will never read Charles Strauss because they will just, it will literally be gibberish opening up the book to them. So, yes? So many of the things that science fiction writers have written about have been exact predictions about our future that have actually come true. Yes, that has been said. If there's no science fiction being written, 
Absolutely right, and which is why some of us still do this noble and honorable calling. Wake, Watch, and Wonder, my trilogy about, I'll come to you in a second, but I'll cut you next. Wake, Watch, and Wonder, my trilogy about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness, deals with the question of, I think, an inevitability that we're going to have to face this decade or next at the latest, either by design in somebody's lab or as a spontaneous emergent property of sufficient complexity, somewhere intelligent self-aware machines are going to emerge. I don't think there's anything mystical about consciousness, as those of you who attended my morning lecture know. So it's going to happen. The visions that we'd had hitherto in science fiction were all negative of that. There are only four visions. There's one that's good for us and three that's good for the machines. The one that's good for us was the Isaac Asimov vision. Isaac Asimov said, you know what? We've got to treat them like slaves. Here's the list of things that a plantation owner in the 1800s would want from his slaves. They will never harm me. They will obey every order I ever give them. They will put my property interests ahead of their own. That's what you want from your slaves. Those are the three laws of robotics. We'll go out as masters. They'll be our slaves. Wow, wouldn't that be cool? I actually find that a reprehensible vision of our relationship with other intelligent entities, no matter whether they're mechanical or whether they're biological. The notion that you will enslave them to, to ensure your own safety and your own prosperity, wrong. But that was the only positive vision. The three negative visions were the matrix scenario, where we are subjugated, the terminator scenario, where we are eliminated, and the Borg scenario, where we are absorbed. And nobody had put out a vision, a compelling, well-grounded in science and logic and game theory and evolutionary psychology, vision for how it could be a win-win scenario where we could survive the advent of superintelligent machines with our essential liberty, individuality, dignity, and humanity intact. I felt it was important, I, you know, not to be grandiose, but I wrote these books because I felt it was important that that vision be part of the dialogue. So even though I could have done other things with my time than writing these science fiction novels, as you say, if there aren't science fiction writers giving us the smorgasbord of possible futures so that we can choose the one that we want to make a reality, we end up with the default condition, which almost always is not what we would really want to have. So, yes, I promised you. So, um, I haven't read all of your books. Yet. A mistake, but you can rectify it. Yes, I love that theme. Thank you. I feel like it's the best first contact story that I've read. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned Jack McKevitt, who also does a lot of first contact stories. Um, so I was just kind of curious what your general thought processes are when you, when you come up with, you know, there's some entity, whether it's uh, intelligent animals or whether it's um, a super intelligent robot web. Um, when, you, when you have this entity that comes into contact with humanity, what's your thought process social changes that, that will come out of that and the pop culture changes that will come out of that and just the, the sort of overall wave of change that will happen in first contact 
Well, you're very kind to say that, and I must say I was extremely honored last August because the SETI Institute put on their first ever SETICon, which was a big conference for the public about um, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And they invited all kinds of astronomers and physicists and even a couple of actors who were well-known for playing aliens, uh, John Billingsley, who's Dr. Phlox, and um, Tim Russ, who is uh, Tuvok, uh, the Vulcan on Voyager, um, and exactly one novelist, and it was me. And I was thrilled because, indeed, uh, you're right, first contact is my specialty, one of my specialties. And um, I think that most people who think about first contact think of it solely as a technical exercise. How will you make the contact? And haven't been thinking about the ramifications of what happens after the contact. Um, part of it, I think, I always look for, you know, what, what are the things in my background that make me approach things in the way that I do? There's a pop psychology theory that says middle children are uh, bridge builders and peacemakers, and I'm a middle child. Um, and so whenever I am doing it, I'm always looking for some way where two groups that would not normally have anything in common try to find some kind of middle ground out of it. And that certainly informs all of those books uh, that you mentioned. Um, secondarily, uh, I'm a Canadian, and Canada is still part of the Commonwealth of Nations, the former British Commonwealth. We still have the Queen of England as our head of state. We just had an election, and in order for the government to be dissolved so that the election could be called, the Prime Minister had to go see the Vice Regal, who is the Governor General of Canada, the Queen's representative in Canada, and say, excuse me, uh, Elizabeth II, all-powerful, may we go about our democratic business with your leave, my liege. And we did. So the notion that uh, when two powers meet, there's going to be a disparate, uh, disparate power structure. And wanting it to turn out well for the ones who end up being the colonists or the colonized uh, probably comes out of Canada having much longer kept its ties with where it used to be a country, uh, a part of, right? You were part of the British Empire too. You had your... Uh, Declaration of Independence in 1776. We waited almost 100 years to peacefully negotiate independence in 1867, right? Five generations of Canadians were born and died as British subjects before we said, you know what, we really don't want this anymore. And they said, you know what, you're kind of a pain in the ass anyways, we'll let you go. <laughs> Very simple and straightforward. But it's a different kind of cultural milieu that I grew up in, uh, where instead of there being hard lines between civilizations, but you know what? We don't want to go completely. We're still part of the Commonwealth, and we consider Paul Cornell was here. Uh, we were doing the game show um, just in uh, just a minute, uh, two nights ago, and Paul is British, and I'm Canadian, and I was talking to Cherry Wiener, which is one of the great names of all time for somebody who isn't a porn star. Uh, she's a literary agent who's here, and she's Australian, and there is a a brotherhood or a sisterhood amongst us um, as people who nonetheless were separate cultures but had a contact with, at one point in our past, something that was more powerful. And, uh, and we found ways to retain our interconnection and also retain a, a connection with the original mother source. Uh, and I think that informs an awful lot of how I approach it. The third thing is you mentioned pop culture, and I'm hugely obsessed with pop culture. One of the things that people find intriguing in my science fiction novels is that people in my science fiction novels actually read and watch science fiction. Lots of people in the real world do, but in most science fiction books, they take place in an alternate world where science fiction was never invented. 
And there is no reference to Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Planet of the Apes, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert A. Heinlein. It's as if that whole mode of thinking that I was just talking about as being an important mode of discourse had never been invented. And I firmly believe you can't be a purveyor of pop culture and then deny the existence of pop culture. It'll just go insane if you do that. So I've always been highly attuned to pop culture and how pop culture responds to what's happening in the real world. And uh, in everything I do, it informs the books, but it also very much, I think, brings a perspective that you've noted with great kindness uh, to my work that deals with first contact. Somebody else? Hi. I'll tell you how it ends, save you the bother. <laughs> no, sorry, go ahead. One of the things I found that kept me interested as a reader was your use of people with different points of view, including disabilities and so forth. Was that a tool for you to be able to view the web differently? Trying to make the World Wide Web into a character is very difficult because it has no moving parts. You can't watch it and see it do anything. And trying to explain what it's like to have an ability to perceive reality around you growing and developing is very hard to do with just the web as the viewpoint character. So I surrounded the web mind with a variety of people who were coming to grips with perceiving the world in new ways. Caitlin Dechter, the 15-year-old blind girl who gets an implant that gives her sight for the first time. Her autistic father who knows that he's not a neurotypical and is surrounded by people who are perceiving reality in ways that are foreign to him and he's trying to fit in. Uh, Hobo, the hybrid chimpanzee bonobo, who is learning to make representational art, which is something that no ape has ever done. Distilling the images that he sees and making symbolic representations of them. Um, And uh, uh, that sort of stuff swirling around Uh, gave me a way of bringing to life, by metaphor, what was happening to the World Wide Web. So they were very deliberate choices uh, of what the traits were of these characters to support the the thing that I was really trying to get you to wrap your head around. What would it be like to be emerging de novo, out of nothing, into a world in complete sensory deprivation and slowly starting to perceive the whole reality that surrounds you. Yes, was it a tool? Very deliberately chosen tools. Very, very deliberately chosen. Absolutely. Exactly. Thank you for that. Thank you. Of course, uh, it's been said that Asperger's syndrome is the national religion of science fiction. There's so many people in science fiction fandom and in the industry who have it. Um, And yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm of the mind that says that autism, um, at least large parts of the autism spectrum, are not disabilities. They are simply alternative ways of being. and uh, I, I always, whenever I portray someone, whether it's a blind person or whether it's an autistic person or whether it's whatever, um, I always try to have their dignity shine through because they're valuable human beings. And uh, Dr. Malcolm Dechter, the autistic character, I worked very hard to make that happen with him. So thank you. Have you ever played 
Did you read Hominids, Humans, and Hybrids? Well, the uh, Hominids, Humans, and Hybrids are about a, a parallel Earth where Neanderthals survived to the present day, and we did not. And it's kind of, the Neanderthals come off looking very positive throughout that series compared to us. But there's one thing that's an undercurrent in the background of that series, and that is that they had the Great Purge at one point. They just decided to get rid of a big part of their gene pool that was disruptive um, and uh, became a more harmonious, harmonious society because of it, but also became a society that a lot of us would consider lacking in basic civil liberties because of it too. But they literally did do a, a, a purging of what they felt were the elements of society that for the long-term benefit of civilization, they'd be better off without. Now, every time any one of us, Homo sapiens, has tried that, it has been a horrific holocaust or catastrophe or a pogrom or something uh, terrible. And one always has to be conscious of that past. Whenever we say, yeah, I know this failed every single time we did it before, but this time it's going to succeed, you know, it's like John Cleese getting married again. It's like, yeah, okay, John, this one's going to work. Sure, right, right, yeah. Yeah, I trust you. Okay. So, but yeah, I have thought about that. But as an evolutionist at heart, evolution is driven by the Darwinian engine, which is natural selection. The selection operates on variation. If there isn't variation, there's nothing to select. And it's gotten us pretty far having variation. The more variation, the better. And we've seen whenever a gene pool gets reduced in size, uh, that populations disappear. In fact, an argument for uh, why the Neanderthals disappeared, an argument, is because they became hyper-specialized. They were a cold-adapted people. The big noses that Neanderthals are famous for, one possible explanation for that adaptation is to humidify very cold Arctic air before it's drawn into the lungs so that the inner lining of the lungs will not freeze out where we take a breath. The brow ridge, which is uh, distinct from the brow ridge, uh, distinct separate evolutionary uh, uh, path to the brow ridge of chimpanzees and, and other great apes, uh, is sometimes thought of as being exactly why I wear this baseball cap here. You're in fields of snow, and you need something that shields your eyes so that you can still see the herd that, that you're following. And so they've got a natural, before anybody had a cap, they had a, brill, a bit, brim above their eyes. All great hyper-specializations for really cold weather, and the glaciers started receding 10,000 years ago. Uh, more than 10,000 years ago, excuse me, they'd receded by 10,000 years ago. Neanderthals died out 27,000 years ago uh, as their territories got smaller and smaller. They had very little variation. Whereas if you weren't a geneticist, and indeed for a long time if you were a racist, you would look at all the different apparent species of humanity that exist today based on skin color, eye color, hair color, stature, build, um, and say that, you know, Earth is populated by, you choose your number, three, eight, 12 different species of humanity. We survived. We have a great deal of diversity. They failed. They didn't have a lot of diversity. So we always have to take great care when we say, let's explore the possibility of reducing the diversity. If the Ice Age had never ended, the Neanderthals never would have had a problem, but when it did end, and suddenly it turned out to be an impediment instead of a benefit to have many of the physical adaptations they had. Among the other physical adaptations is short stature and short limbs, uh, because the closer you can keep your, your extremities to the central core, uh, the warmer they stay. That's all well and good if everybody around you has short limbs, but once 
the temperature rises and long limbs let you outrun the guy with the short limb, you're at a distinct disadvantage, right? And so uh, the reason that we have survived and done so well as a species is, in fact, paleoanthropology, the out of Africa, that we dispersed from Africa fairly early on and possibly more than once and got regional variation that maintained inter-fertility um, right to the present day uh, so that we have an incredibly varied template of human beings. You can find people all over the planet who look completely different, and yet they are 99.99999% genetically identical. And that's been the strength of the species, not in any way its detriment. Somebody else? i got time for one more. Yes? Somebody else? You're kind. The question was, what did I think of the evolution of humans and Vulcans after first contact in the Enterprise series? I didn't watch all of Enterprise. I watched most of the first season and got really disgruntled and watched a bunch of the fourth season because my friends Garfield and Judith Reeve Stevens had become uh, he, uh, senior writers on the show. Um, I was kind of pissed off by a lot of the stuff that happened in Enterprise. Um, they had this whole thing where the Vulcans were not behaving like Vulcans. The Vulcans said, Vulcans were, in the 60s, the coolest people ever. They were pacifists, they were vegetarians, and they, uh, they prized logic. And now they contrived this whole thing eventually to either placate the fans or do something to explain why uh, T'Pol and all the Vulcans we saw were these duplicitous, uh, mean, um, violent entities. Um, you know, it didn't even start with Enterprise, so it started with Voyager. I mean, Tuvok was, what was his title? Tactical officer on a starship? What Vulcan, what follower of Surak, the founder of Vulcan philosophy, would say, here, my job's going to be weapons officer. Excuse me? No, your job is going to be peacemaker or diplomat. Your job is not going to be weapons officer. And so somewhere along the line, the whole vision disappeared. And you can probably chart a lot of this having to do with Star Trek starting off being written by a bunch of left-wing people and ended up being in the hands of a bunch of right-wing people for a long time. Um, and you got very different visions of what superior aliens would be like. And, you know, Vulcans were clearly superior. They were left-wing hippies superior in the 60s. They were right-wing militants superior in the, in the 90s, in the 2000s. So I wasn't happy with it. I did think that said that Jolene Blaylock was brilliant as to Paul, and I thought Gary Graham was excellent as Ambassador Saval. I thought the casting, by and large, was excellent. And thank you all so very, very much. I appreciate this. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Dexa. I am Grail. And I am versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT, only on vtwproductions.com.